if you descend into a squat, the dia the the outlet of the pelvis, so what people call the pelvic diaphragm or the pelvic floor, has to descend to go into that direction. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, coming off a very solid weekend. Hope you had a good one yourself. Uh, two quick housekeeping items. IFS University, we have a group call at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So uh, be ready for that. If you are not on IFS University, go to ifsuniversity.com and you can start to participate in that group. Um, secondly, gonna open up applications for the Intensive 14, um, probably either today or tomorrow. So if you're on the mentorship list, you're gonna get first dibs on that. So be looking for that email. If you're not on the mentorship list, you can just go to uh, billharmonpt.com, go to any of the, the posts there at the very bottom, you can get on that mentorship list so you get first dibs on applications for the intensive 14. All right, digging into today's Q&A, this is with Sam. Sam's a powerlifter, um, may have had a, a pelvic floor issue um, associated with a lift, and so we got into a lot of stuff about sticking points and pressurization and how the, the uh, pelvic outlet behaves during lifts. So remember, when we're talking about sticking point, this is a high pressure exhalation strategy that we have to utilize to get through this, this mechanical position of, of the pelvic outlet. Remember that if the pelvic outlet isn't going up, neither are you. If it's going down, you're going in that direction. Um, so again, a very, very big deal for anybody that's gonna lift heavy things, but especially for the powerlifters when we're, when we're dealing with sticking points in the squat. So again, I think you'll find this useful. If you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15 minute consultation in the subject line, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. All right, Sam. Cool. <laughs> the Interesting already. Video is rolling. Clock has started. What is your question? Okay. Um, so I was uh, in the doing. I was doing powerlifting uh, for a minute, um, and I was squatting. And for a few months, I kind of heard the thing that if you hold your breath for like several repetitions, you can create more intra-abdominal pressure, uh, and therefore you'll be stronger. Um, so for all of my main lifts, I kind of held my breath. Like I didn't exhale or I like exhaled as minimally as possible. Um, and so I was doing a squat and like everything, like it felt like my whole pelvic floor just descended. And then my abdominals just stretched right out and I couldn't create any ab intra-abdominal pressure. Like I couldn't lift anything for like three to four months. Because of pain or, or something else? Pain. Yeah. It would be like a, pinching stabbing pain near my belly button and then i would get that feeling where everything was going to like fall out from under me or like something was going to pop okay. um so i guess my question is is like and my physiotherapist she said um it was because uh my my pelvic floor and like my abdominals was the it was just too much in a concentric tone so she just recommended that i would like relax that so i guess my question would be how would you go about getting that into a more of a relaxed state so that I can lift heavy weights again kind of thing. Well, well, number one, to lift heavy weights, you have to have concentric orientation of the outlet of the pelvis. It is impossible not to, okay? Mm -hmm. So the simple rule is you will move in the direction in which you expand, right? So if, if your belly expands, the pelvis orients anteriorly it's following the expansion if you descend into a squat the dia the the outlet of the pelvis so what people call the pelvic diaphragm or the pelvic floor has to descend to go into that direction to go in the other direction you have to you have to compress you have to concentrically orient and that is an exhalation strategy which is a breath hold so a breath hold is an exhalation against a closed glottis okay so that's the vasalva I maneuver mean, you probably heard that all right. And so you have to do that to lift heavy things. You know, I, I, I have a couple of questions for you. So when you say that you felt pressure behind your belly button, did you herniate at all? Yeah, that was the thing. So I, I got it checked out at the, at the ER and the doctor said he thought there might've been, um, but then after like further, further palpation, like he didn't, he didn't think there was at all. Like there was no protrusion at all, but um, yeah. <laughs> All right, so so based on your description, we kind of have to default like, okay, you had some measure of strain, okay? 
Um, again, we don't have enough. We don't have enough uh, uh, findings to, for us to make a really hard, hard and fast decision. Um, if you're still having symptoms, then you might need some more diagnostic testing to clarify exactly what may have happened. Um, just so you know, if you have any structural integrity issues, if it's just a matter of time in, in so-called healing, then that's a, that's a totally different story. But the, 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 the point about, about relaxing your, your, uh, your outlet and, and such is just a simple inhalation, uh, behavior. So that's how it expands. It eccentrically orients as you breathe in. And so, so that would be the, the foundation of that. What you may want to do then is start to just work on full range of, of your, your squatting. And that might require you to go to like a platform where your, your heels are elevated. So you, you can emphasize the eccentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm. So you teach it to move through its full excursion again and do so in a pain-free manner before you try to start reloading. Because like I said, if you wanna go back to lifting heavy things, that is an exhalation strategy, that is high pressure, that is a breath hold, you don't have a choice under those circumstances. And in fact, all of us have a threshold where we will reflexively hold our breath to produce that pressure. Because once again, it's like for us to move upward, that that pelvic outlet has to move up in that direction. Otherwise you don't go anywhere. If, you're, if your outlet is expanding downward, that's the direction that you're going. Like you don't have a mm. choice, okay? Okay. Um, so then I guess, so essentially what you're saying is just, um, so just focus on getting that like, so that letting it fully descend so that I can go in the opposite direction again. Um, and then just do it in a pain-free manner until it's no longer pain, like no longer painful, essentially. Right. So, so under these circumstances, so, so when you're recovering from like a, like a true muscular injury, the, the way that you do this is you just progressively expose it to more and more stress over time, assuming that you start with your full movement capabilities. That's what I would try to do first under your circumstances is I would say, well, let's get you into the deepest possible squat that you can with the greatest de degree of comfort and we'll start there. And so again, what I would want you to do is, is express the fullest excursion of that of that pelvic outlet that you can because that tells us that we have this this full range of capabilities available to you so can you expand yes is it painful no then chances are connective tissues are intact muscles are intact etc cetera, etc cetera. that gives you your yielding capability so so that's why we want you to be able to move through a full excursion because that puts everything on the greatest degree of stretch if you will Okay. And then to reverse gears, we move you up against resistance, which would be gravity or your body weight for right now. And then you say, can you do that in a pain-free manner? Yes. Then we can start to load you gradually. So now it becomes a, a, a situation of just graded exposure of load. So, so we're increasing the magnitude of load. You start to play with a little bit of speed. So you get some of the, some of the connective tissue behaviors to, to, to um, be restored. So you get the, the release of energy. So we don't want just a yielding capability in the bottom of the squat. We want you to be able to overcome and be able to release that energy. Cause again, that's gonna contribute to your ability to lift heavy things. And so again, you, you've, you've got some things that you can be doing right now, assuming that they're pain-free and then, and like, like I said before, it's just, then it's just a matter of degrees of load over time. So you just gradually expose yourself to more and more stress. And as long as it's pain-free and as long as your, your uh, technique is, is within whatever range is acceptable to you, then that's how you'll progress. And then you just basically, you just slowly return to lifting heavy things. Okay. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm blanking on the question I wanted to ask now. Um, right. Yes, as a, as a follow-up, I guess. Um, so when, like when I'm breathing, say during a, uh, like a squat bench or a deadlift, does there have to be like, a, there has to be an exhale at some point of lift, but like at the, at the end of the rep on each rep, right? So like that holding. Well, eventually you're going to, you're going to have to release some of the, yeah. <laughs> you have to release some of the air. Uh, otherwise, <clears throat> actually you're limiting, you're limiting the excursion of, of, of movement. Right. Um, because, again, what a breath hold is, 
is a reduction in movement. And so, so you're trying to create the highest amount of pressure because there's a, there's a transition point where that diaphragm really has to push up against gravity and the load. And by position, it has to achieve a certain position to get through it. So this is what we talk about when we talk about the sticking point in a squat or any lift for that matter, all of them will have a, a point where mechanically the, the amount of internal pressure has to be ramped up, the concentric orient, orientation, the overcoming action has to be at peak output. So we talk about max propulsion under those circumstances, that's usually where that is. And so you still have to create that. Even with a light load, there's going to be a peak force. It's just not a maximal peak force of, of any kind. But again, that's what you're exposing yourself to. Um, it would behoove you probably not to hold your breath through multiple reps, because again, then you're, all you're doing is sustaining that internal pressure um, to against those tissues. And then there's going to be a tolerance level that, that they can handle. And then if you exceed that tolerance, then guess what? You're going to have a little bit of an incident. Mm -hmm. And I guess it, I, I, during, during whenever I would set the brace, I think I was doing the thing, you know, the diaphragmic breathing where I would think about just expanding my belly, like, and expanding that during the inhale, which I guess is supposedly now that i know is the opposite it's supposed to kind of draw in on the inhale like but i mean does that really matter um i wouldn't say you draw in on anything i wouldn't okay. i wouldn't use, i wouldn't use that terminology nor nor um lock that concept into to any element of your technique i would not i would not use that um there when anytime you breathe in there there is there is expansion the question mark is is are you expanding against resistance so again when you're lifting heavy things and you breathe in like if i put a big heavy barbell on your back there's a certain amount of upward force that you're going to have to produce there's a certain amount of exhalation strategy that you have to maintain otherwise you would get crushed by the weight and you're going to breathe against that so there, you're going to breathe against that resistance the question mark is is can i get enough fill to create the the incompressible um, axial skeleton that I can stack a lot of weight on and still move through space. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so you said yeah. Okay. So my uh, final question, I guess, because I think we do have a couple minutes. Um, is so I did work up to like a, a submaximal deadlift really compared to what I was doing before. It was like a hundred pounds less than what I was doing before. Uh -huh. um and then i got that like it was like bottom right like it was like just left of like the right iliac, iliac crest it was like i felt like it was like something was gonna pop like i feel and i saw swelling in that is that just like an accumulation of fluid or something like that or is that yeah. just like is that literally telling me like stop creating that much pressure it's going to hurt you again it, it, it it's going to depend on in the initial incident was there any any trauma that you're still healing from? Is there anything that that gave way and and has not recovered fully? Um, it could just be a, a, a sensation. Again, hard for me to to, to fathom yeah. at this point. Um, I would rely on somebody else's exam under those circumstances just to make sure that everything's intact. Or you just back off and you and you you take another run at it. But I'm always default to getting it checked, you know, just to be safe. Um, considering that you did have an incident um but but again hard for me to determine exactly what would be going on yeah yeah i was, I was mainly just kind of looking at making sure the breathing mechanics that i was i was picturing it the right way i guess yeah. um understanding that yeah always come back a little bit slower than you think you should okay so, don't let your ego get in the way of this because what if it does then you're going to set yourself back even farther and it's going to take even longer to get back to where you were so so again just just be progressive but but also be smart so and and again it's not about it's not about like oh that pain is acceptable and i can tolerate it okay it's like that is there for a reason it's to let you know that that you need to be aware of something and so it shouldn't be like anything that's isolated like that um should be monitored and and have some concern over it like i said to the degree where you know if you need to get it checked get it checked please mm -hmm. okay. okay um yeah i think that's i think that was great yeah that was awesome you're welcome sir um just be logical be smart be careful and and then have some fun too okay absolutely all right brother thanks a lot bill and the narrows tend to be better designed by structure to be squatters. Okay, yeah. Your, your wides are better deadlifters.
Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. First order of business. So I sent out the link to the application for the intensive 14 last night to the mentorship list. Unfortunately, there was a little bit of a glitch that didn't allow you to access the application. So apologies for that. That has been remedied. You should have gotten an email this morning um, with the updated link to get you to those applications. So I'm looking forward to seeing those to start rolling in um, today. If you have any questions, just let me know. Speaking of questions, let's dig into today's Q&A. This Q&A was with Mark. So Mark had some questions about some of the foundational representations in the, the two archetypes, so the narrow ISA archetype and the wide ISA archetype. So we went through that, and that evolved into a discussion of the different squat variations that we're going to utilize with those two primary archetypes and what some of the compensatory strategies we might see um, utilized in each situation. So I think this is actually a very useful Q&A for, for a lot of folks, especially folks that are new to the model because it's going to give them some really, really good um, foundational information. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. I hope you have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you all right, Mark, the clock has started. We are recording. What is your question? Um, I just had a question regarding um, the video that you did on the narrow ISA squat strategies. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and as I was reading through it again, I, I noticed, you know, they had them in, the person that was put giving you that question had the client in, with heels elevated and finding not great strategies and you gave some other strategies. So uh -huh. I guess the first thing that came to mind before actually really going through it a lot in my mind, but was like, well, they're kind of already in that inhaled position with, with the uh, heels elevated um, or with, uh, I think, I think they were uh, a wide ISA um, or wide um, infrastructure um, IPA, I guess. And, um, and weren't they, aren't they already in that position? And then as I was reading through that, it, you kind of mentioned that, that, well, it's probably not the best strategy because it's going to, you know, increase that posterior, you know, um, compression, I guess. And then you gave them the bands around the knees um, as, a, as a strategy to help with opening up that, that top of that sacrum area. And about the, with the wider stance um, variation? Well, I think just the band around the knees, and and uh, and I think you mentioned just keeping keeping everything straight okay. and not pushing against the band. Now I know which one you're talking about. Okay, because the, the, there's there's a couple there's a couple orientations that you can use um, with with the the band resistance, and one is a wide strategy, and one is a narrow strategy. So, uh -huh. yeah. So so under these circumstances, what we're what we're doing is we're playing with the outlet behavior, which is why we're we're holding that position of the uh the thighs in parallel okay as you squat through the middle range um and the the pelvis um is is in a position where it would be um, traditionally thought of as a flexed hip right so in that representation the musculature above the greater trochanter reorients its direction of pull it becomes an internal rotator not an external rotator so so again this is one of those things where kinesiology books don't talk about um, moving through space, they talk about dead guy representations and they say, well, all these muscles are external rotators and they actually change directions. So we have to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So what the band does is it prevents the, the, as the, as the pelvis orients, it reduces the internal rotation capabilities of those, of those muscles. And it prevents the, the sacral base from being compressed to the same degree. So as I sit below that level, I now have a sacrum that can actually move backwards into counter nutation at the bottom of the squat, which would be a representation of our early propulsive strategy. So then I get the, the eccentric orientation and the yielding action of that musculature that allows me to capture that inhaled position. The reason we would use this in the first place is because we have somebody that has a superficial strategy that is preventing the, the, the pelvis from orienting into that early representation. Right. Okay. So can you just go over a little bit with um, 
and you, you, you just differentiate between the wide and the narrow with heels elevated for both. So is it, is it, because if, if they didn't have any um, tilt to the pelvis and they were just, to say they were just um, a narrow, right? They're, you know, they're gonna have the ilia coming forward and out. So the bias would be an, would be an externally rotated and dominant and then the counter nutation of the sacrum, that would be their bias. Okay. So, so it's an ER inhalation bias. Okay. So if we elevate the heels where isn't that is that's I, I guess complementing that same bias? Yes, absolutely. We're moving we're so typically what we're trying to do under those circumstances. So if I'm elevating the whole foot, so the whole foot's on a platform, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm trying to maintain the bias towards that early representation of propulsion, which is the, the ER bias. So so they're going as they descend into a squat, they have to move towards internal rotation and right. exhalation. But if I'm trying to to maintain the bias, because I'm trying to accomplish something, which would be to to capture the early representation, which would have a, a different uh, muscular orientation and a connective tissue behavior that I have to consider for me to capture certain positions during certain activities. So again, that's why I would use that because I'm trying to control the 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 way that the the movement produces the behavior, right? So I'm right. trying to hold them in a position. Okay. If I if I take a wide and I do the same thing, I know they don't have the same potential to achieve that position that say a narrow ISA would, but I'm still trying to buy as much room as I can because if I can give them a bigger um, space of external rotation to move in, I can capture more internal rotation as they're passing through that middle range of the squat where they have to go towards an exhalation strategy. They have to move towards a concentric pelvic outlet. They have to move towards internal rotation. And that's for that narrow. What right. the, the last thing I mentioned was for the wide ISA the that, that would be biased towards the internal rotation. Because so to think about this for a second, if, if I'm already achieving a, a position that is biased heavily towards internal rotation right. and I try to move into internal rotation, yeah. I'm not going to be able to move because it's going to stop me because eventually the compression strategy is so strong that it literally stops movement. That's why people stop moving is yep. because the compression does not allow it to occur. Okay. And that's what I was thinking is not thinking about all the other things that could happen, but just having just that representation of that, of that, of that, um, that wide. Yeah. They're having a bias towards IR that the heels elevated makes like, great sense to give you that space yeah and then what i was kind of a little confused on and then knowing that there's circumstances that could happen with layers of compensation but just looking at the archetype of of that um narrow it just like why would you want to do heels elevate if they're already there but it may have misunderstood a little bit but potentially you could do that in order to main maintain that position and for that later part of the for the squat right right it, so in, you know mark in a, in a perfect world um i don't want to have to elevate someone's yeah you know in a squat and the narrows tend to be better designed by structure to be squatters okay yeah your, your wides are better deadlifters because of the orientations um, that are that are are pre-designed by their by their physical structure, but there are situations where I'll have narrows that have superficial strategies that are being applied that I need to to capture that that uh, early bias to allow them to capture um, increased ranges of motion just like everybody else does, right? Oh, I have to have a space first that will allow me to move. If everything yeah. is compressed, I don't have a space to move in, yeah. and therefore I, I have restricted movement. And then you'll see the compensatory strategies. So this would be like somebody that, that doesn't have enough space initially, what do they do? Well, they move their feet apart, they toe out, their knees go out because their external rotation space is not in front of them anymore, it's off to the sides. So that's where they have to go to capture the space to move in first. Mm -hmm.
you will always have to have a space to move in. Otherwise you can't move. So would you find that with your, like if you have a narrow, you're like, hey, this guy should be all ER'd up, right? But is it that they, they, they have that decreased space because of their, the A to P is compressed and you, are we gonna find that more so like, say, hey, this guy's a, I mean, this guy's a narrow, okay, good. I don't need to use hills elevated because he's already there. But then you're like, hey, he can't do it. He's bringing his legs up. Oh, well, maybe he's A to P compressed. So yeah. then that's your strategy for your narrows that are A to P compressed. Absolutely. Otherwise, if they don't have that, just keep them flat if they can do it. Right. Why, them if they, yeah. why? So, so elevating someone's heels or putting them up on a platform is a compensatory strategy that I'm intentionally using yeah. Yeah. to achieve an outcome. If I don't need it, don't use it. Yeah. Right. Because I have people that walk in the door that can show me the prettiest front squat from day one. And guess yeah. what? I don't have to worry about them. They don't have those issues. But when I have people that do have those issues and we're trying to recapture the relative relative movement, by, by all means, we have to come up with a strategy that influences the system to behave a certain way because that's what they're doing in the first place. All they're doing is behaving based on whatever strategy they need at the time. If I can create an influence that alters that and teaches them an alternative, that's the goal. Yeah. Okay. And then... Um... And that was that that um, that Q and A was from like May 11, 2020. So it was pretty recent. And then some of those alternative strategies that you listed there were like um, prone inversion, child's pose, the, some of those quadruped, um, quadruped type positions that yes. that that helps for those for those narrows. Yeah. And I guess those narrows that are A to P compressed would that be accurate? And yeah. so then. That makes me think of, okay, so when we have a, like if we have a, a counterweight, like one that's in front of us as we're doing, um, doing a, a squat, yeah. it almost seems like as I'm playing around, you know, and kind of do, using some of these movement strategies and stuff, it almost seems like that kind of creates because of the adjusting to that counterweight and having the center of gravity forward kind of creates a lot of the position that you get with like that child's pose, you know, where the, the, That's correct. the, low, you know, the, the hips kind of come back, you get the back to go back and then squat mechanics are like, they're bring, you know, they don't need the knees out. They can bring them, you know, they have that space that you were talking correct. about. Correct. So you're talking about like a plate, what we call a plate squat. Okay. Yeah. So if I'm holding the, if I'm holding the, the load straight out in front of me at, at chest level, Okay. okay. What I'm doing is I'm creating a, a dorsal rostral compressive strategy. Okay. So that is concentrically oriented on the posterior aspect of the upper thorax, which would promote expansion anteriorly behind the sternum. But I also get posterior expansion below the level of the scapula, which is where I need it to access the early propulsive strategy in the first place that I needed to create space to create the deep squat. So it's That's just another much. alternative. Yeah. Right. But a lot of times we have to use these things together to get a big enough response. But if I can get somebody flat footed in the gym with just a plate squat and, and achieve the, the deep squat that I want, absolutely, I'll use that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then as far as like the progression, then we use all these tricks to get space, to get good movement. And then, you know, I've seen those, I've seen those, um, some of those ramps and things like that, as far as, you know, I, I would think that the idea of like programming is you're like, like when the next time they come in, you're trying to say, Hey, can I decrease that ramp? Absolutely. You know, as you're doing that. Sure. And so basically I'm moving down the ramp, you're decreasing the angle. And then it's, is that, you know, as far as a way of charting your progress and, and, and all that, as far as like, Hey, you know, I dropped, you know, so far or whatever, dropping those heels. And eventually you're getting to where they're flat with the weight and then they're basically bringing that and they're not needing it. And so you're making change and they keep that change lasting. I mean, we gotta, we got you know, kick the, we gotta keep tuning up the system. It's just not like, Hey, I got, I got that space now because of these archetypes, you're still going to have this bias to like revert back to those. Well, they, 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 they have to behave based on their structure. There's yeah. no other choices. You don't, you don't, you don't get to change that. 
No. Right? Your mom and dad kind of decided whether you were going to be a good squatter or not from the get go, uh -huh. right? So, so we can't change that. And then, then the, the thing that we have to do is as coaches is we have to decide, okay, how much of this do I need to, to utilize on a regular basis to assure that I'm maintaining the qualities that, that I want, right? Or do I need to change the influence to accomplish a different goal? So, you know, if, if I'm trying to recapture relative motion or am I trying to produce force, I'm going to have different strategies that I have to that I have to put together. And so in some cases, I'm working to maintain something while I'm gaining something else. And so that's how we decide. It's like, well, how much volume am I going to put towards this part of the program? How much volume am I going to put towards the other part of the program? And so it's it's always a, a little bit of a of a, a juggling act, but that's why you follow your key performance indicators. It's like at some point in time, you decide to say, I'm working on this as the priority. I'm gonna maintain the rest of this. And then you observe and you measure and then you adjust. And we are in a constant state of doing that. Mm -hmm. Like there's no absolute way that you're gonna, you, you can't predetermine this thing because the system's gonna respond the way the system responds. And we are always moving towards whatever it is that, that our intention is, but we have to observe, measure, and adjust. And as far as like with, um, like let's say squats and deadlifts for the two archetypes, mm -hmm. you know, basically a wide isn't going to be that deep squatter that you wanna be loading. They're just not built for that. And then they just have an increased risk for not being in position and then hurting themselves or, you know, <laughs> Cause you can maybe maintain position with, with, with that person with a light load. And then you can get, you can get those health indicators where you have good range and you have good space. But as soon as you start to load, 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 and now you're going heavy, now you're compressing everything. And you know, they're just, they just got to go with what they're built for. If from, from a, from a loaded heavy type of a thing. Generally because you're correct. Absolutely. Cause you think about the extremes. So, yeah. so we use the extremes as representation, knowing full well that everybody's kind of like this mix of stuff in between, right? Mm -hmm. But, but we use the extremes to to establish the the so-called rules, if you will. And in general, in general, um, it doesn't mean that your wides can't can't demonstrate what you would consider a good squat, whatever your standard is for that. Um, it just means that that their physical structure is less likely to produce. Um, something that doesn't require some measure of compensatory strategy to achieve whatever it might be. So it's, it's not like a wide ISA can't be an Olympic weightlifter. Okay. It just means that the way that they're going to get into that, that deepest representation of the squat is going to be a little bit different than somebody that would be biased towards the narrow ISA representation. Right. Right. So again, it's, it's not that they can't achieve certain goals, but the how, the how is going to be determined by structure. You have no choice. So like the narrow can get into the squat better, but the wide can actually come out of the squat better. So, or, or just think about, just think about the, the, the loading parameters that would be required. All you gotta do, I tell you what, Mark, if you want to see something really cool, just go to, go, go to uh, images on your, on your search engine and just plug in like Olympic weightlifters and just look at the different variations of orientation at the bottom of a snatch or the bottom of a clean. And you're going to see strategy that is, that is a broad spectrum of representations. The reason that you're seeing that is because certain things have to be established. I have to have a pelvic outlet that's in a certain position. I have to achieve a, a, a hip joint position at the bottom of the deepest possible squat, which means that I, ha I have to have enough um, positional capabilities to do that and how people do that are different based on their physical structures, right? It doesn't make one wrong and one right. It just means like, this is how you're going to achieve that task, right? So we, that's why we can't pigeonhole people in to say, this is the right way to squat. Okay. How do you squat? That's what we need to, to better determine. Gotcha. Does that help you? Yeah, it does. Awesome. All right, man. I'm glad we finally got this one taken care of, huh? Yeah. It was a tough, tough one to get together. By the way, love the shirt. Um, very, very flash, if you will. <laughs> right? right? All right. You have a great day. Appreciate you. Each, each element of that graphic is then broken down into smaller and smaller parts. And so now let's kind of dig into some, some principles.
Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Happy Wednesday. Hey, Wednesday. That means that tomorrow's Thursday, which means that we have a Coffee and Coaches conference call at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Link will be on my professional Facebook page if you would like to join us. Um, again, these calls have always been great. We're going to keep doing it as long as there's interest. So again, please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, secondly, I just opened applications for the Intensive 14 to those of you outside the mentorship list. So we had quite a few that came in through the mentorship list, but we got a couple of um, application spots available. So we only take a certain number of applications because it's basically I got to process these things myself and do all the blind readings myself. And so that's a, it's a lot of work. So I, I cut it off at a certain point. We got a few more that we're willing to take. So uh, please plan accordingly for that. Okay, today's Q&A uh, actually comes through askbillharmongmail.com from Daryl. And Daryl says, are there any principles that you see as absolute when you're applying your model? Absolutely. In fact, I did a video on this um, back in December. I believe it was December. Um, where I, I did, I sort of laid out some of those those principles that I always have in mind as we're going through the treatment process or the training process. The thing that we want to recognize is that this massive amount of complexity that we see in, in human movement can be mixed down to a certain level of, of principle. And if we can understand those when we're in these unfamiliar, uncertain situations, we can rely on those principles to allow us to apply the model in a very coherent manner. And that has always been the goal is to is to establish coherence in regards to a model of human movement. So Daryl, I hope that this the following clip here answers your questions for you. Um, if you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to Ask Bill Hartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will establish a time for that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget to put 15-minute consult in the subject line so I don't delete it. Um, everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you all tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference. This comes from Robert, and Robert says, thanks for putting out all the content that you do. You're welcome, Robert. Um, it has been very helpful. Considering the extent of your model, are there any principles that you find are absolute or foundational to the successful application of your model? Have a great day. Um, thank you for that, uh, Robert. Yeah, yeah, I got I got some some uh, principles sort of to, to live by or to follow. They are adaptable. They are ever changing. I think that as you gain new information, they are going to change. So real quick though, first and foremost, what I would say is the number one principle is you should probably draw out your model. So whatever you think that you know or how you do things needs to have some sort of physical representation. Get it out of your head, get it on paper so you can actually see what you do. And so right there is a representation of where my model stands um, right now. It is adaptable, it's ever changing. There's several things that change within that um, that that are not represented in the in the graphic itself because each each element of that graphic is then broken down into smaller and smaller parts, and so now let's kind of dig into some some principles and these are things that I they sort of write down as I go that that remind me of certain concepts so again it just keeps me on track and provides me a framework for for decision making structuring and then determining best courses of action so um, principle number one is actually pretty simple um, and it, it's based on the Hippocratic Oath It's basically do no harm preserve the dignity of your of your client or patient and then teach the next generation what you know and I think that we have a responsibility for that so that's that's a biggie and, and again it's kind of at the top of the list um, next principle seek the minimum adaptation that allows the maximum output. So this goes towards conservation of resources. Um, so it'd be like uh, if you took a drug that had an effect and then you took more drug and then there's no additional benefit to that, that's that's a waste. So we do the same thing with resources. So if we're training someone or if we're if we're rehabilitating someone, then we want to we want to promote the desired adaptation and then we want to make sure that we're conserving the remainder of resources um, so they remain uh, adaptable in, in other aspects. Because if we overshoot and we apply too much effort, then all we're doing is drawing on resources that we could be using for other things like recovery um, and rest and regeneration. So again, that, that goes towards conservation of resources. Um, 
principle, uh, humans are complex adaptive systems and will behave as such. So there's an element of unpredictability in all complex systems. So we have to appreciate that fact. And so we have constraints. So these are behavioral constraints um, or, or structural constraints that we have to pay attention to. There's going to be a hierarchy of systems. So I say hierarchy because we never know what element of the system is, is running the show per se. We can say that certain things are are predominant at certain times and through experience we can determine what may be what may be running the show but but ultimately we have to consider that we have this integration of a massive number of subsystems um, that, that we have to, to attend to. Um, you have all sorts of concepts like degeneracy, acceptation, nonlinearity, emergency, emergence, and, and self-organization that are also in play with complex systems. So so we must pay attention to that. Um, Along the same lines with complex systems, principle would be there may be more than one solution that will result in a desired outcome. And so, so these are one of those things that there is a cause and effect that's associated with, with, uh, with elements of working with a complex system, but we just don't know what those are until we do something. So, so you'll see, like in Kinevin, we'll see like a, a probe sense respond kind of a concept. So what we have to do is we actually have to run an experiment. We have to see what happens, and then that, that guides us into the next principle. And knowing full well that there may be more than one solution. So, that, so if we looked at something as simple as choosing which exercise that we want to do, there may be multiple exercises that will provide us a solution. To, to a problem. Um, simple principle, do what is most important. Many things appear to be important um, and impact the system. But again, we have to consider the, the hierarchy um, when we're, we're talking about what would be the best course of action. Sometimes we don't know. Again, we have to experiment, but with experience and, and time, we can reduce the probabilities and come up with a, a potential solution. Um, Principle, supplementary training is not done in isolation from all other demands, whether perceived or not. Um, so this is one of those things that, that people start to throw things and they go, oh, it doesn't make that much impact, but you might actually be creating interference for yourself. So those of you that are that are fond of the concept of a finisher in a workout where you're trying to kick somebody's butt so that they, they feel like they've worked out before they walk out the door or you're doing this extra work, you actually might be creating interference for something else if it is in conflict with, with the desired outcome. So keep that in mind. Um, principle, be comfortable with uncertainty and unknown. So again, we're dealing with complex systems. We don't know what those outcomes are going to be. And so um, we have to sort of pay attention to what's going on. And that's going to help us determine the next course of action. All models, uh, principle, all models must be adaptive. Because behavior is an emergent property of a complex system, we don't know what's going to happen. And, and so we have to have a model that can adapt to the idiosyncratic elements as each individual is going to behave a little bit differently. We have concepts that we can that we can follow, obviously. We have constraints that we can be aware of, but but again, each person is going to have those those little idiosyncratic elements. That, that the model must be able to, to adapt to principle. Once movement repertoire is dependent on the ability of the body to access full excursion of breathing. So what you refer me talk about two strategies, one plane. So, so universal principle is that, that movement takes place through expansion and compression. We do the same thing. Breathing is one of those ultimate representations of our ability to expand as we breathe in and ability to compress as we breathe out. And especially with, with breathing, it, the fluid that we're using is air and air is compressible and expandable. And, and so again, if we don't have that full repertoire of breathing, then the chances of us to be able to, to move with full adaptability is, is slim to none because chances are we're gonna be using some form of compensatory strategy. We're gonna be using some form of, of superficial musculature that's going to prohibit our ability to, to fully access our movement options. Um, principle, there is no one best way to move. So once again, if you read the work of Nikolai Bernstein, you've, you've read about repetition without repetition. And so under these circumstances, um, we're not going to be able to reproduce the same movement over and over again. So even though it might look the same, so let's take a baseball pitcher, for example. So they, they throw a baseball in a very specific manner and each pitch might look exactly the same. Um, what we know full well, and we can actually track these things, that, that those movements are never the same. Uh, although they are similar. So we're playing with signal and noise here where we want to minimize the amount of noise when we're talking about high levels of performance so we can have a reproducible outcome 
even though it might not, not be exact, but there's not one best way. What we want to have is as many ways as, as necessary so the, the brain and the body can come up with a solution um, for any movement that, that would be within a specific context. Principle. Neutral spine is immeasurable and unnecessary as a concept. So the neutral, neutral word is on the list of dirty words that we try not to use. Um, because we can't even tell if anybody would be there, nor do we know if, the, if anything is optimal. So what we're looking for, and let's just talk about the axial skeleton as a representation of this, is what we want is, is it's not, we're not seeking one ideal. What we want is, is an adaptable axial skeleton that allows us to effectively distribute and transmit the forces that we're exposed to with, within a specific context. That's what's gonna give us the best shot at one, a, a, a favorable outcome, but also uh, health at the same time. So let's get rid of the, the, the whole neutral word and, and let's move on to something that, that is more associated with making sure that we have that adaptability. Principle, any model of movement must be coherent with physics. So this kind of seems a little obvious, but but we have to appreciate the fact that we are part of this universe and so we must behave as such. So we have to follow the guidelines uh, of physics. So again, when I talk about things like expansion and compression, that's a universal principle. It's like, we can't deny that. What all we have to do is then recognize is like, well, how do we respect that principle? Then we can have a, actually have a deeper understanding of how we move. Principle. So remember where they came from. So this is sort of a, a two-fold principle. Um, it represents um, a, an embryological, remember where they came from, and then a, a learning-based, remember where they came from. So if we can understand how we evolved um, in, our, in our own development, now a lot of the, the reasoning behind how we achieve certain movement outcomes is much easier to understand. So, so that's why we wanna learn um, the, the embryological foundations. Um, and they are underappreciated and they answer many, many of those questions. Secondly, when we're working with, with an individual, uh, we wanna remember where they came from. So they've already learned certain behaviors and certain strategies, and those are ingrained, if you will. And so when we're trying to make changes in someone's ability to move differently, then um, we have to respect the fact that even though we might be able to demonstrate a change, they may default back to uh, what they are more comfortable with, or like I said, what has been ingrained through, through time and experience. So we have to give them time to learn something new. And, and so again, when we see a regression, it's not that we did the wrong thing, it just may, may be that they didn't have enough time or exposure um, to the new information to process that and then establish a new behavioral output. Principle, movement arises morphologically due to hydrostatics and hydrodynamics in helical patterns. So this goes towards what you're made of and, and what your structure is. So you're 99% water and 1% stuff. And so you're basically a big bag of water. You have to follow those principles. And so those are based on hydrostatics and hydrodynamics. And so that's where we want to start to, to, to push our understanding so we can get a better grasp on how we actually move through space. Principle. The compensatory strategy utilized to manage the internal forces is limited and predictable within limits based on the common constraints of the system. So we have internal forces and we have external forces and we have to manage both of those. And so one of the things we have to recognize is how we control the insides matters. So, so we are designed such that, that our, our internal forces can behave separately from what we see in this symmetrical movement system on the outside. And so a lot of the behaviors that we'll see that produce limitations in movement or interference are actually just associated with us controlling those, those internal forces. Thankfully, we do have an understanding of some of the constraints of the system. And so we can narrow probabilities to where we might have some predictability as to what your strategies may be. Um, that becomes helpful, but it's, it's typically acquired through repetition and experience. And again, we always have to con consider the idiosyncratic elements of that individual system as to how they're going to behave. So Robert, I hope that answers your question to some degree and you find something useful in this discussion. Um, there's certainly um, question marks in, in all of these things. Your principles will be adaptable over time. They will become more and more refined, so please keep that in mind. Um, but again, I suggest you start by drawing out your model. It's a perfect place to start so you have an understanding of what you're actually doing and then you can remain adaptable and grow from there. So if, if, if these are the hip sockets, and he's like this, you're measuring the straight leg raise over here. Yep. So my question is gonna be in regards to like a bone stress injury. 
Um, so I had a young gentleman come in yesterday, um, 17 years old, for a left tibia stress fracture. Um, he was on the right oblique axis, wide ISA. Um, so like pre-exposure to this model, my mindset from like a treatment standpoint would have been all right. So like bony injury, like have to generate like some sort of like osteoblastic activity to start to form like that healing process. Um, so almost like load it up and just get as much load as we can through that bone in a pain-free manner um, to generate that response. Um, but now I'm kind of thinking I want to like confirm the thought process a little bit um, that like maybe it's a yielding issue. Um, from like a connected tissue standpoint, he just didn't have the capacity to distribute the load, whatever he was doing a lot of track workouts um, when like the injury started. Um, so is, would you kind of think about it the same way? Is there a, cause I guess those two kind of thoughts kind of go against each other in my mind. Like on the one hand, if I was going to load it, probably creating a stiffer response, which he's already probably pretty good at. On the other hand, if I'm not going to be loading it and going more for the yielding side of it, um, then I maybe don't get as much of that osteoblastic activity from like a bony healing standpoint, um, but I get the, the yielding response I'm looking for. So do you view it as two extremes, like one or the other, those kind of have a place together in this plan of care. Uh, okay, so, so think about what got him there. High force, right? Mm -hmm. High force strategy is going to work for you? I'm sorry? A high force strategy, is that going to work for you? Because since that's what got him to you. Probably not. Okay, but you can apply it differently, can't you? Uh, How long is this ground contact time? Uh, very brief. Okay, so what if you still apply the force over a longer duration? In terms of just in like a traditional, like a weightlifting? No, I'm not saying that. Doesn't mean you can't, just means like, when, when you think about like what got him there, all right? And so when you apply a force at a high rate of, the, at, at a higher rate, so I'm applying the force over a shorter period of time, mm -hmm. what happens to the viscoelastic tissues? Stiffens up. Yeah. And so that's what happened, right? Bone gets really, really stiff and it responds as something that is stiffer. So it's the silly putty that snaps clean, right, on a, on a line. But if I start to progressively load that and I do it over a longer duration, what will what will happen in, in the case of a viscoelastic tissue? Not as stiff. Right. So so I so I start to create a yield, right? And I start to distribute the force. So what you have is a representation of a very, very focal force application on the bone. What I want to do right, right off the bat, first and foremost, is I want to teach him how to distribute that. One, it's going to help alleviate a lot of the symptoms, right? So I get less focal load, right? Um, there might be some, some shape issues associated with foot position, tibia orientation, femur orientation, pelvis orientation. You still have to address those, right? And then you got to bring him back to have the ability to apply the same force that brought him to you, but maybe teach him how to distribute that a little bit more effectively, right? So maybe it's capturing enough internal rotation somewhere that he doesn't have to try to do it through a bone, right? So he, he learns how to distribute that force a little bit more effectively, right? So you're not wrong, like you need both, yeah. Right? but when you think about the initiation of, of the treatment, it's like, don't, don't do the same thing that got him there, right? Because chances are that's not like, it's like, uh, uh, how do you fix a hangover? You, you drink more alcohol, right? Yeah, it's like not usually the best solution. Um, and I'm not speaking from experience at all. Uh, but but uh, no, it's like your, your, your thought process is, is pretty solid just change the application, right? Because um, you've got a lot of options here. And chances are um, he doesn't respond well to one of them, which is apparently is like the high rate, high force. Because mm -hmm. he's not distributing it well. Gotcha. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And then just a couple of follow to that. One, just from a conceptual standpoint, like with the right oblique axis, um, 
and those can depend on like a lot of other factors because obviously this is on the left side for him. Would you expect the tissues to be behaving more stiffly in general on the right side because you're coming up and over onto the right? So like that's under more load or does that make sense that like it's on the left it's side? Gonna, yeah, it's going to depend on where he is with his center of gravity. Right. You know? And so again, um, I think Alex was just talking about somebody that was probably a pretty clean looking right oblique initially. They could, they'd have a lot of ire on the right side and limited ire on the left side. He was he was limited IR on the right and had more IR on the left. Okay, so he's okay. So all right, so here you go. Why do you have more IR on the left where it should have disappeared, right? That's was one of my points of confusion. <laughs> okay, so think about this. Is it coming from the hip? I'm gonna guess no. You're gonna guess no. <laughs> okay, so so think about the orientation and and so. What should have dropped off is is hip IR on the left side, right? That's that's typically what you're going to see from a process standpoint. So, I will give you a hint, Zach. It's probably not coming from the hip. Okay, so where's it coming from? Is it like an orientation of the lumbar spine? Yeah, yeah. So when you move the hip, the pelvis is already going forward. The spine turns away from you as you measure the internal rotation. So you get a magnification. Even, even if it's like, if you got like zero right and you get 20 on the left and you go, well, that's not an exaggerated internal rotation measure. Yes, it is because he shouldn't have any, right? So you got a spine that's turning away from you as you're measuring that, that left hip IR. So now think about the orientation of the pelvis how do I get, how do I get internal rotation on, on this side of the pelvis when I don't have any internal rotation here? So I'm going to do that, right? So now I got an acetabulum that's facing straight down and I'm jamming this leg into the ground. Seems like a, a recipe for maybe a little bit of bony stress, perhaps. Just a little right? bit. Maybe, right? Yeah. So think about this though, same guy could have come in complaining about like a left-sided lower back pain, right? Or left SI joint pain or something like that if he was distributing the load there. He decided to try to dissipate it through the tibia under these circumstances for whatever reason, right? Yep. And by, by, so by that same thought process as far as how he's getting the IR on the left by turning the lumbar spine, does that mean his right hip ER already limited, which kind of um, is even more limited because is that magnified because of that turn? Maybe so, maybe so. But but what you might end up with, and this this will this will be a little potentially a little confusing, is you might go, but he's got a lot of hip flexion, hmm. right? It seems like he might have more hip flexion than he should, or he's got a little bit more straight leg raise than than you than you thought he would have. Yeah, he he's got like ninety degree straight leg raise on both sides. Yeah. So you, so but you're but here's so if, if if these are the hip sockets and he's like this, you're measuring the straight leg raise over here. Yep. So you see you see what you see what I'm saying? It's like he's got his pelvis, he's oriented on this oblique, the left acetabulum is far enough to point downward. So your straight leg raise, he's laying on his right side and you're doing a straight leg raise off this plane over here. And, and then suddenly they say, well, his ulna got too long. That's kind of what you're dealing with, okay? And it, the ulna didn't get long, the radius got short. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Mm, that's really good. Okay, busy Friday today. Um, Quick housekeeping note, uh, I did close the application process to the Intensive 14. We hit our number there. Um, so we'll be going through those applications, doing the blind readings here pretty soon. And we'll notify attendees, I believe it's by July 8th on that. Um, since we're kind of busy today, I've got to dig into um, today's Q&A. This is with Michael. And this is from yesterday's uh, Coffee and Coaches conference call. Really good question. Um, kind of builds on a video that I did a while back. I did a two simple solution for um, the uh, the pain you get with the uh, presses and push-ups and, and being down on all fours. 
and we talked a little bit about the orientation here and a little bit more of the of the solution as to um, why you would approach this in a certain way because of, of the way that the mechanics interact especially um, at the wrist and the interaction between the the uh, radius and ulna and so again i think you'll find this uh this very very useful um, don't forget when you go to the youtube page to take a look at that too simple solution um, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you would like to participate in a free 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line of your email. Um, give me a heads up on what kind of a question you're going to ask as well. That's always helpful. And then we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. I will see you all next week. Yeah, um, so I have a new client... And he has two issues that I know we've talked about and you've gone over, um, but applying it to someone in front of me, I've just forgotten exactly what to do. So first is he has lateral wrist pain whenever he's, so he initially said started six years ago when he was a waiter, he had to hold it here. Okay. And now like I'm having him doing crawling so he yeah. can bear it, he can get through it, but I ask you, I ask him if he has any discomfort and he does say yes. Um, so I'd like to get rid of that. So I'm thinking, I only had a couple of sessions with him. So I'm thinking um, sideline driving pronation or am I on the right track of driving pronation to open that up? So, so let's talk about the wrist position that creates this first. Yeah. All right. How, how old is this guy? He's 26. Okay. So he's 26 years old and his, his, it's the right side. Yes. His right ulna just grew an extra centimeter relative to all the other bones in his body. And they want to cut off the end of his ulna. Has anybody ever heard that one? Have we ever seen a distal ulnar excision? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's like you, you take somebody that apparently has a, a fully calcified skeleton and then suddenly they say, well, his ulna got too long. That's kind of what you're dealing with, okay? And it, the ulna didn't get long. The radius got short, okay? When, in, in normal, like if you had like totally average everything, full movement capabilities in pronation, as you take the, the, the palm down, the radius moves over the ulna. You understand that concept, right? Okay. Because you're you're taking a bone that was relatively straight and you're putting it on an angle, its its distance from the elbow is shorter, right? It's, it's like it's like the um, it, it becomes like sort of like the um, I don't want to say it's the hypotenuse in the triangle because the triangle is changing shape. But anyway, radius gets shorter relative to the ulna by its distance from the elbow which makes the ulna appear to be longer. And that's normal. That happens under every circumstance, um, assuming normal anatomy, which means that you lose in pronation, you lose ulnar deviation and extension by traditional measures. Okay. So if you put somebody in all fours and they get like a, like a, they, they'll get, they'll get pain on the back of their wrist or they'll get ulnar side wrist pain. All right. Um, he is living sort of in this pronated representation. So when he was a waiter, and I'm just throwing this out there since you brought it up, when he was a waiter, he had to do like the early stage of an overhead press all the time. Chances are he eventually did do some overhead pressing with the, um, uh, the position of the wrist that we're talking about. Um, so if he has an adaptation in the radius that, that causes an inward rotation, that can be part of it. Um, but there's a couple things he might have to do. If he has a pronated hand relative to the wrist, right? And that's, you can do your little apple test, okay? Where you go like that and then you release it. And if it, if it doesn't go any farther, then chances are you've got eccentric orientation of abductor pollicis longus which means you do have a permeated hand, um, then you're going to need to untwist the hand, right? Which is going to require supination relative to the, to the rest of the forearm. Okay. So you could do like a, um, uh, like a uh, supinated bent over um, elbow extension with a cable. Mm -hmm. 
okay? Bent over in internal rotation, okay? That'll get the hand orientation to come back, okay? Um, sometimes you can do a curl in the same position with the, the thumb pressing into the, um, to the dumbbell. So you get the concentric orientation back along the radial side of the thumb, okay? So those two positions are useful. Then if he's missing a lot of shoulder internal rotation, then you can do like a, like a, like a, like a side plankish oblique sit kind of a thing with, with pronation. Mm -hmm. so you're going to internally rotate, internally rotate, internally rotate, internally rotate together. Okay. But I would caution you that in, with the hand in the pronated position, I would take a folded towel and I would put it under this part of the hand because I don't want this part of the hand to pronate. I want this part of the hand to pronate. Okay. Because okay. chances are he was pronating this part already. So he was already in this orientation. So if I block this part like that, mm -hmm. then I can get internal rotation. I get all internal rotations without the excessive pronation of the hand orientation because that's where he's symptomatic, right? So I want everything to turn together under these circumstances to restore IR, 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 and then IR here. So you have to reorient the hand first to review. Reorient the hand first, okay? That's gonna require a supinatory activity and then turn everything into interrotation together. And again, I, I didn't measure the guy, so I, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants a little bit here, okay? Right. But that's, but at least the orientation, I'm, I'm fairly certain that the orientation at the wrist is correct. 